You can begin to open your Bibles uh, to Psalm 95. We'll be looking at this psalm this morning. Um, Has anyone ever heard of a man by the name of Joshua Bell? Has anyone ever heard of that name? Rings a bell? Nice. (laughs) Nice one, David. Very very clever. So, Joshua Bell is widely regarded as one of the greatest violinists in the world. Um, He plays with orchestras and symphonies um, all around the world. He plays a 300-year-old, $3.5 million Stradivarius violin. Um, Many scholars consider that instrument to be the finest violin ever made. Um, He's considered to be one of the most revolutionary classical musicians of his generation. And back in 2007, Bell partnered with the Washington Post to kind of conduct an experiment. So what, what they did was he set up in a, in a DC subway station and just started busking. Uh, just to see if anyone would recognize him, if anyone would, would, would realize what was happening. He played for 45 minutes total, and in that time span, there was one person that actually recognized him, who recognized his face and said, wait, that's Josh Bell. Only one person recognized what was happening and said, I need to stop here. Whatever I'm doing, wherever I'm going can wait because this opportunity is set before me to see the greatest violinist in the world. I need need to stop and I need to soak this in. This doesn't just happen. Right? He said, this is so beautiful that I I need to, to, to stop what I'm doing to sit here and experience this. This person saw something that was truly amazing. It was truly a blessing. And she simply responded to it. You see, during that time span of 45 minutes, there would be a couple people who would stop here and there. And they'd listen, maybe even throw money, you know, in in his case. uh, but, But they missed what was in front of them. They were too busy. You know, they had somewhere to be. You know, I don't have time to stop to listen to this guy. Right? They were too casual. Right? They were just going about their business, doing whatever they wanted to do in that moment. They didn't, they, they didn't want to stop and pay attention to the fact that one of the world's greatest musicians was right in front of them. Friends, my biggest fear this morning is that that would be us. Is that every week we come into this place and we gather to worship a living God who is here, who is present, who is above all, yet comes to meet with us, and that we would miss the opportunity to actually stand before Him and worship Him. The One who created the heavens and the earth, the One who created you and me, He's here right now, He's present. He's before us. This morning, it's so important that we don't miss that. That we don't take these opportunities for granted to come together and worship, to come in sort of with this casual nature, to come in with just this this temporal mindset of thinking we'll do this, go to the next thing, when the living God is here with us. We get often so consumed with ourselves and with our lives then we come in here and we forget to actually do the thing that we said we were going to do, which is worship God and give Him the glory that He rightfully deserves. So this morning, I think we need to talk about corporate worship. Let's talk about how to rightly worship the Creator of the universe together. You know, many of us come from varying traditions, right, with various views regarding corporate wor- worship, and this morning... What I'd love for us to do is just to set aside our traditions, set aside our preferences, and let's go to the Word of God to understand what it looks like to worship the only one who's actually worthy of worship. So let's, let's read this psalm. Psalm 95, it says, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. 
Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods. In His hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. As at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, Father God, we ask that you would reveal to us how to rightly worship you. Reveal to us how to give you the glory and honor that you deserve. Burden our hearts, break our hearts to give you honor and praise and glory and adoration. For all of this is yours, and you are the king of the universe. Teach us, sanctify us, so that we may rightly worship you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, as we sort of talk about corporate worship this morning, I just want to address kind of a theology of worship that I think is helpful. We have to ask the question, if we're seeking to worship God, what actually is worship? What does, what does it mean to worship? Right? If you, you could look up any definition of worship, it might, it might say something like this. To treat someone or something with the reverence and adoration that's appropriate to a deity. Right? That's, that's straight from Google. Um, right? Worship is when we make someone or something to be as highly valued in our hearts as God should be. So whether you're a follower of Christ or not in this room, we all worship something. We all, we all worship. I, I believe it's ingrained in our nature to worship, right? There are many who don't worship God, but instead worship their dreams, right? They worship their goals. Maybe they worship a job or schooling or relationships or money or material possessions, right? Or maybe, you know, as we're doing here on this Lord's Day, maybe you're worshiping God, you know, what we should be doing. I do believe, like, that this is because God created us to worship, John Stott says that worship is the highest activity to which man is capable of. And so I think it's important to understand that this is the purpose that God has given us all along. So Genesis chapter 1, the first command that God gave to humans, does anyone know what that was? The command in Genesis 1, 27, 28, it says, So God created man in His own image. He created him in the image of God. And He created them male and female. God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on earth. The very first command that God gave humans was to be fruitful and to multiply. This is important because we have to think about what the relationship was between God and man before man sinned and rebelled against God. It was a relationship of worship, of being able to walk with God, being able to enjoy Him and relate to Him and praise Him. God wanted the earth to be filled with people who could live in that relationship with Him. Well, at the very end of the Bible, we have another picture. I've, you know, the Bible's one story. It's one narrative. It's not 
a collection of books and teachings. It's, it's one story that's all going somewhere. And so it kind of comes full circle in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, it says, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude of every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. God's purpose for us all along was to worship. He told man to be fruitful and multiply so that the earth could be filled with worshipers. And He's going to fulfill that vision that He had from the beginning at the end when there's a vast multitude that no one can number of every tribe, nation, people, and language that are gathered around the throne of God. And what are they doing? They're worshiping Him. That is the nature of our relationship to God. That's what it was always meant to be. Was that we would worship Him, glorify Him, and obey Him fully. It's God's purpose for our lives that we would worship Him and also bring others to do the same. This is why we share the Gospel. It's why we do missions. right? John Piper famously said that missions exist because worship doesn't. The reason we go on mission is so that others may worship God like we're doing here this morning, like we can experience. Further than that, it's really important to note that worship is also the defining activity of the church. The word church, it comes from the Greek, the Greek word ekklesia. Right? This translates to assembly. So, you look throughout the Old Testament, this idea of the assembly gathered... Was, was very common, and every time that the assembly was gathered, they were worshiping. They're always gathered for the purpose of worshiping God through sacrifice, through praise, and through obedience. And this is reflected in the New Testament. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to the Lord, for this is your spiritual worship. So we see this gathering of the assembly to worship corporately. And then in the New Testament, we see this deeply personal, every moment of every day, your lives are a living sacrifice to worship God. So we have a lifestyle of worship. Worship is also musical. It, it, it can't, worship is certainly not less than that. It, it is also musical. Paul in Ephesians told the church to... Uh, address one another and to edify one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So worship is musical. And this idea of worship, it's what we're created to do. It's, it's a lifestyle. It's what we do gathered in the church. It's what we do singing songs, corporately and privately. And it's, just, and it's what we do in our personal lives. It's the very core of who we are as the body of Christ. So we understand that's kind of this idea of worship. It's, it's our purpose as individuals and as a church. So we need to look to the text and see who are we worshiping? Who exactly is God that we should worship Him? Right? So let, in verses 3 and 4 it says, For God is a great God. And a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The first thing is he's God and he's king over all. He's above everything in this world. The depths of the earth are in his hand. When it talks about the depths of the earth, it's kind of talking about these places that are so, you know, deep and so hard to reach that, that man cannot fathom them. You know, we, we know very little about the bottom of the ocean. We know very little about the, the deep ocean. But that belongs to God. He's king over that. It's, he holds it in His hand. He holds the tips of the mountains, places where very few have ever gone. He holds that in His hand. It belongs to Him. He's also over... All idols. 
anything that you might worship. He's above that. He's higher and greater than every, anything else that you would worship. In verses 5 and 6, it says, The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. We have to remember, God is, is not just God and King, but He's the Creator. He created everything that we see. He's the owner of the universe. All of it belongs to Him. You see, He created all things. He created the seas. He created the dry land. And He created you and I in His image. Not only that, but He's the owner of all things. He's the rightful owner. You know, one of the things that has been really interesting, you know, growing up in America, there seems to be this obsession with property. Right? There's an obsession with, like, this is what I own, you know, you don't come on what I own. And so I've, I've been told about uh, the country code here um, where you can just kind of go on people's property and, and enjoy it, you know, and, and it's fine. You know, just don't mess anything up. That's astounding to me. Like, that's crazy. Um, and now I just want to do that just for fun and just, like, <laughs> climb over fences and stuff. But there, there's, like... There's a real kind of idea of, of property that people have in their mind. What's mine is mine. What's yours is yours. You don't touch what's mine. I won't touch what's yours. But the reality of it is all of it is God's. He's the owner of all things. Right? So if we have concept that we own things, inevitably we're going to find ourselves mistaken. Because He is the rightful owner of all things. He's the rightful owner of me and of you. In verse 7, it says, For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. And then if you go back to verse 2, it says, Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. He is our shepherd, and He is the rock of our salvation. You see, He cares for us and loves us so dearly that He sent His Son, Jesus, to die on a cross for us and to rise again and to save us from our, our sin and an eternity in hell. You see, if we'd put our trust in Him, that He did those things and that He loves us, He is the rock of our salvation. Right? The great hymn sings, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. It says that because He is the rock of our salvation. And if we build upon that rock, we can trust that our house will not be blown away when the storm comes. Right? He is the rock of our salvation. He is our shepherd. We're the people of His pasture. The sheep of His hand. Guys, sheep are not smart animals. Sheep sort of wander around and are, are very helpless without someone leading them. That's who our God is. He's our shepherd. He leads us. He guides us. He cares for us. This is who our God is. He's the king. He's the owner and creator of all things. And, and He's our shepherd. Right? And the rest of Scripture also aboundingly proclaims the glory of God. The rest of Scripture paints a wonderful picture of who this God is that we should worship Him. I'll just share a couple with you briefly. Exodus 19.18 says, Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like a smoke of furnace and the whole mountain shook violently. Isaiah 6 verses 1-3 through 3, Say that in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of His robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above Him, and they each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew, and one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. In Revelation 21-23, 
talking about this idea of, of heaven, the new Jerusalem that one day will come. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of the Lord illuminates it. And its lamp is the Lamb. That is the God we worship. Amen? It's the God who makes the mountains tremble. The one whose glory fills the entire earth. The one whose glory will be our light. That's the the same God who does those things. Is here with us this morning. Don't miss that. What a tragedy it would be if we missed the beautiful, amazing king, owner, author of all things that is here, gathered with us. When we're gathered here together, we're gathered to, to behold the glory of God. So let's not miss that. So we understand kind of what this idea of worship is. We understand who it is that we're worshiping. But then how do we worship? I think it's important that we ask, how do we go about appropriately worshiping God in this corporate context? Matthew Henry wrote about this psalm, and he said, the psalmist here, as often elsewhere, stirs himself and others to praise God, for it's a duty which ought to be performed with the most lively of affections. We ought to worship God with the most lively of affections. But I've noticed this a lot in church life, both in the U.S. and in the U.K., and been to loads of different churches. And throughout my experience, wherever I go, I see people that gather to worship this living God. And I see people kind of standing there with their arms crossed and like frown on their face. And... God is in the room. The living God who created all things is gathered with us to receive praise and glory and adoration. Yet some of us just look angry. We look upset that we have to be here and do this. That's absurd. Let me just say, friends, the redeemed people of God cannot just stand there looking visibly upset when God is waiting to be worshipped. And, you know, don't hear what I'm not saying. You know, some people are more expressive than others, and that's okay, right? You know, not everyone's able to jump around and, you know, whatever, raise their hands as high as possible. And that's fine. But I take issue when people look upset aggravated and distressed when we're gathered for corporate worship. To worship a God who's waiting, who's waiting to receive glory from His people and we make no effort to engage with what's happening. That's not right. And guys, this, this is particularly common amongst men. <laughs> Some of the ladies are laughing. I've seen women do that too, so you're not off the hook. But it, it is particularly common amongst men that are supposed to be spiritual leaders, that are supposed to set the example for their families on how to follow God. Yet men are the last people to humble themselves and worship Him. It's not right. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of people that sort of have this posture. And here's some background. I probably should have said this earlier. I used to be a worship leader. You know, I used to be a worship leader. I used to, like, live in this world of planning corporate worship and leading people in that. And that, that, was, that was my ministry. And, you know, I, a lot of people that would take this posture in their worship... Like, I would, you know, maybe I'd talk to them and they'd be like, well, you know, I'm, I'm just worshiping my heart. You know, I'm, that's what I'm doing. And okay, Maybe. But I believe that what's happening in your heart 
will reveal itself through your actions. It will reveal itself outwardly. You shouldn't just look upset like it's a burden for you to be there. That's not right. God is glorified by our outward expressions of worship. He's honored when we outwardly are excited to praise Him. That's wonderful. Furthermore, you know, there, in talking about how we worship, there, there's a variety of different groups and traditions that have varying views on what's appropriate for corporate worship. Some say you should only sing songs from certain artists or certain traditions, right? Some say, go further than that, you should only sing hymns, right? Some will even take it a step further, you should only sing psalms, right? Like, nothing from human writing, you know, it, it, if it's not inspired, you can't sing it. You know, there's some that say you shouldn't move when you worship, like you can't move around, you can't lift your hands. Some even go as far as to say you shouldn't have musical instruments at all. Right? In Baptist life in America, dancing was a cardinal sin for a very long time. You know, we, we, just, had, we just had a group of high schoolers that were at, um, from a, a Baptist high school. And I remember a day where their school would not host school dances because dancing was, was viewed as, as wrong, you know. And I mean, the way that they danced, it's prob- that probably would have, been, would have been the right call. But nonetheless... Nonetheless, there, there are loads of people who have these varying sort of extreme views on what we can and can't do in worship. Guys, it's not in the Bible. None of this is in the Bible. It's legalistic and it's wrong. All right. In fact, there's actually very little in the New Testament that, that talks about corporate worship. Like, there are people that try to act like the New Testament is this sort of manual for a, how to have a church service. But there's very little that talks about how to have a church service <laughs> in, in the New Testament, right? There's not a set of legalistic rules. There's not a list of do's and don'ts. But there's a command to worship from the heart, in spirit and in truth. To worship genuinely, right? There's a command to offer yourself as a living sacrifice and live a lifestyle of worship and praise to God through your actions and through your habits. And there's also a command to edify one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's what we have. So let's look to this psalm and hopefully understand maybe some practical ways that we can outwardly express worship to God in, in, our, in our corporate worship. In verse 1, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. We sing to Him in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Right? That's one of the most important things we do in our worship is that, that we, we sing. We do that. We gather every week. That's a part of our church life, our habits. Right? For people who aren't Christians, singing is, I think, one of the closest things that they can get to expressing worship. Right? You ever heard of the, the band U2? Right? One of the biggest rock bands in history. I love U2. They're a great band. Um, they play to sold-out stadiums. They, they fill arenas, you know, of just adoring fans from all over. They'll often have these moments throughout their concerts where people that have known these songs and sung them for years and decades, where the band will stop playing and then you just hear the stadium singing. And it's really like a powerful, you know, sort of like thousands and thousands of people, you know, gathering in and singing their hearts out for a rock band. How much more and how much louder should we sing for the God of the universe? For the rock of our salvation. The one who brought us from death to life. We have to sing. That's something I love about this church. It's that 
we do sing. Oftentimes, you can barely hear what's happening, what the musicians are doing and what the singers are, are singing because you're singing. Praise God for that. We have to sing. I would encourage you, keep singing. And sing louder. Sing to the rock of your salvation. All right, we sing. sing. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. The second thing is we shout to Him. We make a joyful noise. I, I like how the, the CSB translates this psalm a little better because it says, let us shout to the Lord. We're called to shout to Him. And guys, as we're worshiping together, if the Lord so impresses on your heart to shout, whether you just say yes or thank you, Lord, that's good. That's not a bad thing. Express that to the Lord. Shout to Him. We should be lifting up shouts of praise throughout our time of worship. You know, many scholars have even said that this word shout, or, you know, the translation of joyful noise, it's much too tame, the translation. You see, the original translation for this word, it implies a loud, wild, rambunctious, just sound of jubilation. We're supposed to get loud. Guys, it's okay to be happy in church. Yes. It's okay to shout in church. God is honored and glorified by that. Shout to the Lord. See, I had a friend from, from my old church, from Calvary, um, he would, uh, you know, in our worship gatherings, he, he would kind of always start off singing. And everyone sort of just knew this was this guy's thing, you know. And, and like, you could, everyone just sort of knew, like, oh, you know, he's, he's doing this. And it was cool. He would start by singing, but, like, along, along the time as we were worshiping, he would, it would eventually just, like, divulge from singing into just screaming. <laughs> like, and, and he would just, like, with both of his arms, you know, so high, and he would just shout and scream what he was singing. And that was such a blessing to me, to see that every week as the person who is leading those times. Because he was so excited and joyful to get to be with Christ. And this idea of shouting, it's not just limited to our musical worship, but when we hear the Word of God preached, right? if you hear something that's good, if you hear something that strikes your heart, and you just feel compelled to shout, Amen, or that's right, or praise Jesus, like, do that. That's good. It's healthy to respond when the Word of God is being taught. And if there's something that just impresses on you and you just feel like, man, that's good, and you just want to shout that, praise God for that. That's a good thing. That's a healthy thing. We should be excited when we hear God's Word and we should shout in response to what He's teaching us corporately. It's appropriate for us to shout that's something for me, I've tried to make a personal discipline. Because a lot of times, like, that, you won't just do that, like, and it's easy to zone out when you're preaching. I know none of you are doing that now. But um, it's, it's easy for that to happen sometimes. And so for me, like, it's helpful to have a discipline of when I hear something that is good to verbally affirm that with an Amen. Or that's good. Or just shout to him. It's okay. Number the next thing is we're 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 thankful to him. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. What are you thankful 
What are you thankful for? What has God done in your life that you're thankful for? Here, I'll just tell you mine real quick. God saved me from a family of drug addicts and criminals and saved me from a life of sin, sexual immorality. He saved me from all that and brought me to new life so that I can be gathered and worship Him and glorify Him. What has He done for you? Has He saved you, church? Has He redeemed you from what you thought would be unredeemable? Be thankful. When we worship, this is the time for you to be thankful. This has to be the attitude and posture of our hearts. Church family, we shouldn't enter church grumbling or complaining about the things that, that we don't have or the things that we think are wrong or about our preferences or things that are stuck with us from our traditions that we come from or things that we see on the internet. We shouldn't come in here grumbling and complaining about those things. But we should have joy and gratitude for what God is doing amongst us and for how the grace of God rests in this place. Church, be thankful when we come and worship Him because we have so much to be thankful for. Amen? Amen. Verse 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Guys, we can bow and kneel to Him in worship. In our corporate time, it's appropriate for you to get on your knees before the Lord. Right? The very act of kneeling or bowing, it represents this total and complete submission and surrender to God. And so when we kneel before God, we're acknowledging Him as King. As someone who's worth bowing before. Right? So if at all during worship or during a message or what have you, you feel compelled or convicted to kneel before God or to whatever you need to do, just to get on your knees or do that. I want to encourage you to do that. There's never an inappropriate time for you to get on your knees before the Lord. It's not disruptive. It's, you don't have to be embarrassed about it. Kneel before God. Because He deserves it. In church, if you're worshiping together and your brother or sister next to you does that, they kneel or maybe they shout or you know, they do things that, that maybe like you don't necessarily do and you feel uncomfortable maybe by it, don't pass judgment. Don't give them a weird look. Like, don't express your discomfort. Praise God that He's moving in your brother or sister. That they would shout to the Lord in worship. That they would kneel before the Lord, their Maker. Praise God for those things. In church, let's be a church that champions that. And that makes it a point to publicly express our worship in these ways. Because this is right and it's healthy. It's right for us to have a culture in which it's not only accepted, but it's appropriate to shout, to sing loudly, to get excited, and to kneel before God. Yes. Right? These aren't the only ways that we can express ourselves in worship. All of Scripture, and especially in the Psalms, we see uh, numerous ways that people worship God. People lift their hands, right? That, that's a thing that, that we see a lot of times. People lift their hands to the Lord. Right? They praise the Lord with instruments like we do every week. That's in the Psalms. Right? That's in the Bible. Praising God with instruments. Right? They clap their hands. They even dance. People dance as worship to the Lord. Right? I said earlier, dancing's been frowned upon in a lot of Baptist churches and maybe completely outlawed in, in many of them. But Psalm 149.3 says, Let them praise His name with dancing. God even wants us to dance. I mean, if you need to dance, dance. I mean, don't be disruptive. Don't do like karate kicks 
where you can injure someone, but if you need to dance, dance before the Lord. We had someone in our old, old ministry that she was like a trained dancer, and she would go to the back of the room during worship, and she would be doing these like ballerina dances, just as praise to the Lord. And I know that sounds sort of silly, but it's beautiful. Praise God that she can praise the Lord with dancing. That's right. I'm going to read you just briefly Psalm 150. It talks a lot about the different ways to worship God. Right? Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heaven. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. We talked about who God is, that we should praise Him. Praise Him with trumpet sound, with lute and harp, with tambourine and dance, with strings and pipe, with sounding cymbals, with loud clashing cymbals. Loud clashing cymbals. Imagine if church on Sunday morning looked like this. May make some of you uncomfortable, but God is glorified. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Our church should be a place where we can authentically and expressively worship Jesus Christ with absolutely everything that we have in us, holding nothing back. This is a safe place to do that. Now, we'll read these last couple verses because we miss the whole point of this psalm if we don't don't go to these these last few verses. Starting at the end of verse 7, it says, Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. The last way that we can worship God is to obey Him. These verses the psalmist gives us a warning. He's talking, you know, he's talking about do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. This is referring to Exodus 17, where the Israelites are in the wilderness. They'd seen God part the Red Seas, they'd seen his glory, they'd seen his works. They're complaining. <laughs> They're complaining about a lack of water. They're not trusting that God cares for them and will provide for them. They'd seen all the amazing things that God had done for them to rescue them from the land of Egypt, yet they still don't trust God and they wanted to do things their own way. Their hearts were hard. They questioned whether the Lord was even with them. In Exodus, they said, Has God told you to bring us out here so that we may die here rather than in Egypt? They didn't trust God's plan and they even questioned His very character. This is a warning. Church, this is a warning against those who worship God but don't trust Him. And don't obey Him. Verse 8 says, Do not harden your hearts. Guys, I think the worst thing that could happen is for us to come in here this morning and worship God one day a week, but then disobey Him the rest of the week. If we do this, we're mocking God. We're questioning His character. And we, we're treating Him with contempt. The Israelites mocked God. 
But when we worship God, we're called to obedience. Obedience is better than sacrifice. We're called to obedience. Is there an area of your life that you come and join corporately to worship and maybe do so with like a a gusto, very expressively, but yet there's an area in your life that you're not obeying God? Is there an area of your life that you're not trusting God with? Repent of that. Trust the Lord. Obey Him fully. Verse 11 says, So I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest. You see, this was a group of people, they were wandering the wilderness for 40 years before they could enter the land that God had promised them. The reason that they had to wander for 40 years is because they disobeyed God. They couldn't enter His rest. So I swore in my anger they will not enter my rest. But there's also a hope in that verse. There is a rest that we can enter. When we sing and we shout and we bow and we kneel and when most importantly we obey God, there is a sweet rest that we can enter. And that rest is available for us. That rest, when we talk about the rest of God, we talk about how God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh, who came down as a man and lived with us who were sinners. And He lived a perfect and sinless life that we never could and then was crucified on a cross as the atonement for our sins. But then three days later, He rose from the dead. And guys, if we repent of our sins and we trust in Him, we make Him the Lord of our lives, we can enter that rest. We can have rest in God. We can have everlasting life and we can spend eternity with Him in glory forever. That's why we gather so that we can worship Jesus and so that we can praise Him for His works, for what He's done. But if we don't obey Him, if we don't follow Him, and if we don't worship Him, we won't enter that rest. Church, let's enter that rest. If there's any of you who don't know Jesus this morning, you've not made a decision to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and make Him the Lord of your life, I want to invite you to do that this morning. Please talk to myself or Ryan or any church member. We would love to talk with you about what it looks like to do that and how you can enter that rest and how you can truly worship God. We want to invite you to do that. I'm going to pray for us. But before I pray, I just want to share one last story with you. There was uh, a worship leader named Zach Neese. And, and he wrote a great book that kind of talks about, uh, about corporate worship. And, and it was really helpful for me in, in my sort of journey as someone who led corporate worship. Um, he told a story in that book. Um, there, was a, there was a gathering of college-aged students, um, university-aged young adults. And they, it was a very small gathering maybe no more than 20. Um, and, and they were, the purpose of it was just they were together worshiping God. And they were, they were singing, they were praying, they were sharing testimonies, they, they were worshiping, they were worshiping God, sharing scripture. And during that time, there's a kid that walks in, um, about 18, 19 years old, who doesn't know anything about Jesus. And he walks into that gathering. And he begins to, to join together with them. He doesn't know what's going on. And is probably weirded out in some ways by it. Because the, these are kids that are kind of doing what we see in the Scripture. They're really 
outwardly expressing their worship to God. And to people that don't know God, that's sort of strange and uncomfortable. But he came in, and as he came in, he felt the presence of God in that room stirring him. And he heard the gospel shared by word and through song. And he heard about this Jesus who could save him from his sin, and the Spirit moved in him. And he repented of his sins and trusted in Christ. Because there was a group of college students that worshipped God and were not ashamed to do so. And through that, this young outsider heard the gospel and was changed. And he was able to experience worship himself. There is a God in here. That same Holy Spirit is moving in here. And is stirring us to worship so that others may be invited to worship as well. So I want to encourage you. Worship God. And lead others to do the same. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for who you are. And we thank you that we have the ability to worship you in spirit and in truth. You are the only one deserving of worship. Lord, would you receive that from us this morning? Lead us to worship you fully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, I think it's appropriate that we worship God now. So let's stand and sing together.